So after one of the coldest, rainiest winters that I can remember, we are finally welcoming spring. And spring is one of my favorite seasons, along with fall. I love both of those seasons so much. And one of the reasons, I think, is that they both bring with them a sense of anticipation. Spring brings with it an anticipation for summer. As we watch all of the flowers start blooming and opening up, and wow, have we ever enjoyed a super bloom this spring. <laughs> and then we start to welcome in that warm weather, and we're definitely experiencing that today. So <laughs> spring is, is just a, a wonderful season of freshness and newness and anticipation. And fall, of course, brings the anticipation with it of the upcoming holidays, including Thanksgiving, one of my favorites, and of course, Christmas, probably the favorite holiday on everybody's calendar. And as much as I love Christmas, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus and our Savior coming into the world and all that goes with that, Nothing compares to Easter's, or excuse me, to spring's celebration of Easter. Easter is the gospel. Easter is the foundation of our faith. And Easter is the reason that he came. It's the hope set before us. I... Um, have just really been contemplating as we come into this Easter week, so often called Holy Week, with all of the miraculous, precious truths that anchor our faith from Good Friday to Easter Sunday. I'm praying for myself and for you that instead of getting all caught up in, you know, planning out the Easter dinner or putting together Easter baskets or that Easter egg hunt for, for the kids and whatever other family traditions you might have for the season, that we'll come with a true heart of worship to celebrate this event. That we'll be able to just really come with a sense of awe and a sense of anticipation. And I think that we all sometimes really need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes afresh to the wonder of it, from the cross to the resurrection. I think that we need to feel a new sense of awe and be awestruck at the miracle of it. And we need to allow the truth of it to excite and to revive our hearts. I recently read an article by Barbara Rainey in which she said that Easter is the holy day that ushers in our hope of being united with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And our celebration of it is like an engagement party. It's the promise of his coming back for us to be his bride. And I just think that that is such a wonderful way to look at it. With the excitement and the anticipation of a bride-to-be, waiting for her wedding day when she will be united with her groom. Barbara mentions in her article that when we anticipate something important, we prepare to celebrate it fully and exuberantly. 
And she adds that unless you grow anticipation by investing in planning for Easter, it will continue to be just another Sunday. And that made me really think about what kind of preparations I'm making to celebrate the holiday. And if I'm giving it the focus that it deserves. I don't know about you, but I spend weeks and weeks preparing and planning for Christmas. From buying Christmas gifts, to decorating the house, putting up the lights on the outside, and planning out get-togethers with family and friends, and of course those big family gatherings on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Yet, Easter is the most important celebration of the church. And I can't say that I put half the time or effort into celebrating it as I do the Christmas holiday. And my celebration of it certainly isn't anything like an engagement party. And it deserves more. It deserves more than to feel like just another Sunday with some Easter baskets and Easter egg hunts and a special meal included. It deserves the time and the attention that it takes to prepare my heart to truly celebrate the most important event that ever was because that's what Easter is. It's the most important event in history and it deserves to be celebrated as such. I have to confess that I am very much a romantic at heart. In fact, you could probably say that I'm a romantic junkie. There is not much that I like better than a good love story. My husband often teases me about my love for Hallmark movies, which he is not a fan of. My daughter and I have this Hallmark series that we love to watch. And every time we turn it on, my husband and my son-in-law vacate the room as quickly as possible. I'm not kidding. Don't let that fool you, though, because really, my husband is quite the romantic guy, even if he isn't a fan of Hallmark films. One of my favorite romantic movie lines, however, isn't from a Hallmark movie. It's from the movie Robin Hood, the one with Kevin Costner in it. It's in the scene at the end where after fighting this great battle to rescue Marion from the castle where she's being held prisoner, she runs into his arms and she says, you came back for me. And he says, I would die for you. And that line just sends my romantic heart to soaring. It really does. <laughs> you know, like Marion, we too needed to be rescued. And I think that all of us romantics would agree that our hearts yearn for a love like that. We yearn for a love that would fight any battle that would jump over any hurdle and face any challenge to defend our honor and to rescue us from harm. And I truly believe that the Lord himself is quite the romantic. I mean, just read the Song of Solomon. And he planted those romantic seeds in our hearts 
knowing that he would unfold the most amazing, greatest love story the world has ever known. We, too, were being held captive. And Jesus came back for us. And he not only would die for us, he did die for us. We sing songs like, there ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no river wide enough, ain't no valley low enough to keep me from getting to you. And as great as those lyrics are, they can't compare to the reality of what Christ has done and the lengths he went to rescue us, to make us his own. And as we stop and we consider it, and as we navigate through it all, as we look at the depth of it and the breadth of it, we see that really is a love story like no other. But as amazing as that love story is, if it had ended at the cross, it would have been a very sad and tragic love story. Much like Romeo and Juliet, the passion of that love and its willingness to go to such extreme lengths to be together, the final scene just leaves nothing but a feeling of loss and emptiness and the tragedy of all of that sacrifice and all of that great effort ending in the death of them both. And if Jesus' love for us had ended at the cross, that would have been the final scene. It would have ended with the death of both sinner and would-be savior, a tragic love story with no hope of a happy ending. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And if we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied. But in fact, he confidently adds, Christ has been raised from the dead. And that's something that deserves a real celebration. You know, we have so many wonderful scriptures and God's word about the resurrection of Christ. But I want to look at one that I asked Lynn to include in the study that we might not add to that list. It's from John 14, 1 through 3, where Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I know that we don't often think of that verse as being one related to Easter, but if we look at it through the eyes of a bride, waiting for her husband, we'll see that it's very much connected. Jesus says in John 11, 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So how are those two verses connected? They're connected because the promise of John 14, 1 through 3 would not be possible without the promise of John 11:25 and 26. Christ's resurrection and his promise to give us eternal life makes possible 
his going to prepare a place for us and coming again to take us to himself as a groom takes his bride. He defeated death, the consequence of our sin, through his resurrection, and he did it all so that he could make us his bride. He did it so that he could wrap us up in his righteousness. He did it so that we could go from death to life. He did it so that this corruption could put on incorruption and this mortal could put on immortality. He couldn't go to prepare a place for us and come back and take us to himself in the state that we were in. As 1 Corinthians 15.50 tells us, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. And without the resurrection, we would be eternally sentenced to mortality and corruption and separation from God. And the love story would have tragically ended at the cross with no hope of redemption and no wedding supper for the lamb and his bride. The resurrection changes the story from a tragic loss to a miraculous hope. It's because of the resurrection that we can embrace the promise of 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4, that God has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It's because of the resurrection that we can believe the promise of Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, that says God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Like promises made to the bride, we've been given promises of an inheritance and a new life in Christ and with Christ. Positionally, we're already Christ's bride. Even though we have not obtained all of those promises in the respect that we're fully experiencing them. Like the soon-to-be bride, we're still eagerly waiting. We're still looking forward to and we're still anticipating them. But the promises are guaranteed. And they are already ours. And they're being reserved in heaven for us to be fully realized on that wedding day. The waiting bride is usually given an engagement ring. And that ring on her finger reminds her every time she looks at it that she belongs to another. And that engagement ring is given as a symbol of the sincerity of that promise of love that her groom has made to her and a guarantee that what was promised will be fulfilled. And our groom, Jesus, has also given us an engagement ring of sorts. He's given us the Holy Spirit as an assurance that the promises that he has made to us will be kept. And just as an engagement ring on the finger tells the bride and the world that we belong to another, so the Holy Spirit in us tells heaven and earth 
that we belong to Christ. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And along with the Holy Spirit, we've also been given the resurrection, which is the living proof that confirms to us that his promises are true. Looking at the celebration of Easter like an engagement party for a bride anticipating her wedding day is an entirely new way for me to look at it. But I have to say that it's really been an exciting way. It's really helped to breathe a new sense of anticipation in my heart for all that it stands for. I know that most of us have heard about um, the custom of the Jewish betrothal and the symbolism of the cup that Jesus offered his disciples at the Last Supper, which was much like the groom offering his potential bride that traditional betrothal cup as he asked for her hand in marriage. And the custom says that as he offers her the cup, he says to her, this is my life, and I give it to you. And she takes the cup, and she says, I receive your life, and she drinks from it and hands it back to him and says, and I give you back my own. The offering and the taking of the cup seals their covenant of marriage, and they become officially engaged or betrothed from that point forward. Pastor Michael has often explained that Jesus' actions at the Last Supper as he passed around that cup, telling his disciples that it represented his blood, his life, and a new covenant, were like him saying to them, will you marry me? We see all kinds of symbolism throughout God's word of marriage being a picture of Christ in the church. God's desire to have an intimate love relationship with his people began at the very beginning of creation, way back in Genesis, when he personally breathed the breath of life into Adam's nostrils and walked with him in the garden. And when sin caused a separation between God and his creation, his love for us went to lengths that we can't even comprehend in order to reunite us back to himself. This cup of betrothal that Jesus passed around at the Last Supper was just prior to him going to the cross. Jesus knew the price that he was going to have to pay to make us his bride. He loved us so much, and it's amazing to think of, that he was willing to pay it, even though he knew that it would cost him not only his very life, but unspeakable suffering. As we approach Good Friday and we reflect on how Jesus laid down his life for us, we're reminded that we're also called to lay down our lives, no longer living for ourselves, but for the Lord who has betrothed us to himself. 2 Corinthians 5.15 tells us Christ died so that we who live might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. And that picture of no longer living for self, but for the one who has redeemed us, it also reminds me of the bride 
who leaves behind her old life, that single life that she was living, and she focuses her attention now on preparing for her new life with her husband. As we come into Holy Week and we approach our celebration of Easter, the first place we come to is Good Friday and the cross. And our reflection there at the foot of the cross is where the preparation of our hearts begins. We need to come and approach humbly and soberly, looking at his sacrifice and all that he suffered and all that his cross accomplished. Here's just a short list of what was purchased for us with Christ's own blood at the cross. First, forgiveness. Our sins made us guilty before God and deserving of a debt that we couldn't pay. We were sentenced to death. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 tell us he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to his cross. Next, he gave us his righteousness and what we so often call the great exchange. There was nothing in us that would make us worthy to be Christ's bride. Any worth would have to come from him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then he brought us into reconciliation with God. Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice to take us from being far to bringing us near. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus... You who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Colossians 1, 21 and 22 says, Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Without the cross, none of that would have been accomplished. But without the resurrection, the accomplishments of the cross would be of no effect. And all that Christ sacrificed, all that he suffered would mean nothing. I think one of the saddest verses in the gospel is found in chapter 24 of the gospel of Luke. It's when Jesus suddenly met and started walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. As he walked with them, they told him all about the events that had recently taken place without knowing who it was that they were talking to. And after filling in their unknown traveling companion on all of the details that led to the crucifixion, one of the disciples says that we had hoped that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And I I just think that statement is so sad because they were so unaware that all that they had hoped for was standing right next to them. All that they had hoped for had already been accomplished, yet they could only see a cross where their hope for Israel hung and died, along with all of their dreams of redemption. And they were blinded to the fact that their redemption was right in front of them, and the victory of the battle had already been won. They were downcast and discouraged because they were unaware of the resurrection. 
And without the resurrection, there is no hope. Without the resurrection, we have nothing but empty promises. And without the resurrection, the only attitude they could have would be the sorrow and the, the despair of we had hoped. But you know, don't we sometimes find ourselves a little bit guilty of that too? Not looking at and not seeing what Christ has already accomplished for us? Not fully embracing the victory, the new life, and the promises that the resurrection has secured for us? Don't we sometimes need to ask the Lord to open up our eyes and just give us a fresh awareness to really see and reflect on the wonder of it? Because it's so wonderful. The resurrection changes the story. It transforms death into life, and it turns despair into a living hope. Because of the resurrection, we have promises that we can anchor our faith on. Easter becomes this joyful celebration of promises fulfilled and soon to be fully realized like a bride anticipating her wedding day. We looked at some of what the cross accomplished, so now let's just look at a few of the promises that the resurrection gives us to look forward to. First, eternal life. John 6.40 says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. In John 14.19 and 20, Jesus says, Because I live, you will live also. The resurrection brings us an inheritance. First Peter 1.4 tells us it's an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, being reserved in heaven for us. The resurrection gives us a place in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2 says, Now we know that if this earthly tent that we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. And Philippians 3, 20 and 21 tells us that our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The resurrection guarantees Christ's return. Our verse in John 14.3 says, If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. The resurrection makes Jesus our eternal high priest. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The resurrection gives us hope. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because of the resurrection, we have peace. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it gives us joy. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. The resurrection gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16, Jesus says, Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And in a little while, you will see me no more. And then in a little while, you will see me. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 tells us that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. This is just a partial list of what Christ did for us through his resurrection. 1 Corinthians 2.9 reminds us that eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. We have so much to celebrate. One of the many scriptures in the book of Isaiah that I love is one that Chris and I used for our wedding invitations. And it fits just so beautifully here. It's Isaiah 61, 10 and 11. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. I want to celebrate Easter with the joy of that bride. Revelations 19, 6 through 8 says, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. I want to celebrate Easter like an engagement party with the anticipation in my heart for that wedding feast. Jesus says in Revelations 22:20, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. And the church, Christ's bride, joyfully responds, Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And that's the heart that I want to celebrate Easter with. A heart of worship for the risen Savior who is alive and is preparing a place for his bride and has promised to come back and take her to himself. So let's celebrate. And let's first have that celebration begin in our hearts. Let's then take that celebration and bring it into the center of our day and all of the day's activities. And then let's bring it with us to the table as we celebrate that Easter meal. And let's make sure that all of those who are gathered there with us know what it is we're celebrating. A risen Savior, a living Lord, and a bridegroom who is coming back for us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we just thank you so much for the love that went to lengths that our minds can't even comprehend to unite us with yourself, to make us your bride. Thank you, Lord, 
for living a life so sacrificially because of your love for us. Like Chris was singing, Lord, living, he loved me, dying, he saved me, rising, he justified me. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done. And I just pray that you would awake the reality of it in my heart and in the hearts of each one of these ladies here. Lord, help us to be awestruck at the miraculous wonder of it and help us to celebrate, Lord, with an anticipation of a bride waiting for her groom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.